it's really about gathering qualitative and quantitative insights so that you can develop a hypothesis about what your customer's job to be done is. And with the insight and all this rich data that you get through this research, you can then apply it to the entire span of a customer's uh, relationship with you. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us, marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques, how do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question, and this show has the answers. If you've been working in marketing for a while, then you've probably seen lots of growth trends come and go over the years. Social media channels rise and fall. Chatbots were once super hot. Now SMS and account-based marketing are all the rage. And if you're active on Twitter, it seems like Clubhouse is all people are talking about these days. Dozens of other tactics have emerged in recent years as silver bullet solutions that will grow your business. Will these tactics work for your business? Well, it depends. Most marketers know that you can't obsess over a specific channel or tactic. You need a more holistic growth strategy. And because marketers in particular, we love naming stuff, a bunch of different methodologies have popped up over the years. Some businesses are proudly product-led, meaning the growth comes from the inherent virality of their product. Others are sales-led, investing in rapidly growing their sales force to scale growth. And others are marketing-led, meaning that they're all about content, SEO, and direct response marketing. All of these approaches to growth are valuable, and any of these strategies could work for you, but which approach is the right one? The problem with thinking about growth from a product, sales, or marketing perspective is that you're skipping an important step. The method that works best for you will ultimately depend on, wait for it, your customer. That's why today's guest advocates for a different approach. She says high growth companies must first be customer led. Gia Laudi is the co-founder of Forget the Funnel and a SaaS marketing and growth advisor. She's also a champion for a new model for growth, customer led growth. Her methodology has helped numerous companies reach triple digit levels of growth by simply using customer insight to drive better decision making. She's also far too humble, and you're going to see what I mean as we kick off our conversation. I'm going to ask Gia to define the term that her partner Claire and her have coined, customer-led growth. I don't know that I would credit us with coining it, honestly. I think it's a term that has been kicking around for a while, but when we were discussing it for the first time and sort of like, yeah, this is exactly what we do. This is the perfect encapsulation of what we do and how we work with companies and and like what we stand for. I did some light research and realized that like, wow, this is really, it's not really a thing. There's not really many people talking about this, which surprised me because I, again, it just so perfectly encapsulates what we stand for as like marketers, especially in the tech space, especially for subscription businesses like software as a service. So 
The idea behind customer-led growth is that before you can decide or before you, you know, really make a decision about the types of sort of growth you're going to leverage as a business, you really need to understand what is the most appropriate experience for the customer that you solve. So a lot of people talk about product-led growth or sales-led growth or marketing-led growth or engineering-led growth. And there's, I even heard somebody talk about design-led growth at one point. There's all of those strategies, all of those growth strategies are amazing if used in the right way and in the right context and if thoughtfully sort of applied. The problem is, and this is especially with product-led growth as of late, which for the record, huge fan of product-led growth. But the problem there is, is if you just sort of by brute force apply product-led growth without really thinking about the appropriate experience for your customer, you're not going to get very far. And you're, it's just going to be a much harder job. So the idea with customer-led growth is before you sort of make that decision, if you can learn about you know, what motivates your customers? What is their struggle like? What do they need in their life? What's, how is, you know, how is it, how is it that they make decisions or come to conclusions or, you know, discover you, evaluate your, your product in this case, you know, what would make them become, you know, truly engaged? What, how would you define a sort of lifer customer, somebody where the likelihood of them leaving you, you know, drops significantly, there's a process that you need to go through in sort of identifying some customer insights so that you can then validate, you know, some hypotheses about what you think a good customer experience will look like for them. So it's really about gathering qualitative and quantitative insights so that you can develop a hypothesis about what your customer's job to be done is. And with the insight and all this sort of, you know, rich data that you get through this research, you can then apply it to the entire you know, span of a customer's uh, relationship with you from experiencing the problem that you solve all the way through to, you know, screaming your name from the mountaintops and, you know, telling, you know, everybody they know about you and expanding their usage of your product potentially. So really getting clear on what is the, what does that entire picture look like and diving into each of these sort of milestones in the relationship with you so that you can be really strategic and really thoughtful about how you build experiences for them throughout the customer journey. So again, the quality, the qualitative and quantitative is really important here. And then the, you know, so that you can identify your customer's top job to be done so that you can then sort of operationalize that customer, that end to end customer experience. We have talked about jobs to be done on a previous episode. Mm -hmm. We actually had Bob Moesta come on and he talked about his new book, which is all about how to apply jobs to be done style thinking to the sales process. Mm -hmm. But now what you and Claire have done, which is so exciting, is you've taken jobs to be done and you've created it as kind of like the starting point to understand how to map out that whole customer journey and create this incredible customer experience. So with that in mind, talk to me, like, are there some tangible examples? Are there companies maybe that you've worked with, or maybe it's your experience as a customer where you can talk about, you know, this was the job. And from that, these were some of the positive things that we were able to map out along the, along the experience. I think there's very few companies that who say that they're customer centric that actually mean, you know, anything really meaningful beyond they've got great customer success or, you know, they're, they have, you know, weekly active users, you know, and, and they're doing, you know, they're, they're experimenting with growth tactics and things like that. And they're being very customer led and they're running a lot of tests and things like that. So people would call themselves customer led. 
I was on this trip to San Francisco and a friend of mine, Lenny Richitsky, uh, who's Lenny San on Twitter, who ha- he's just exploded recently. And I recommend if you are in SaaS or in product, I highly recommend following him and subscribing to his newsletter. So he was at Airbnb at the time and brought me down to where the product team worked. And I, again, like customer journeys were nothing new to me, but we were down in this like very messy office. And I was there with the head of customer success, me head of marketing. And they had their customer journey sort of taped to the wall, but it wasn't a customer journey like the ones I'd ever sort of used or uh, seen before. It was really through the lens of the customer. And it was the first time that I saw a customer journey mapped out in a way that was through the eyes of the customer. So as opposed to you know, a new visitor or, uh, you know, trial sign up and MQL, SQL, and those, you Mm -hmm. know, credit card entered those transactional moments. It wasn't like that at all. It was 100% about these value moments in the relationship with their customer. Now, Airbnb has obviously a pretty complex uh, customer journey, much more complex than, you know, our simple SaaS at the time when I was at Unbounce, but I sort of had this light bulb moment And I was like, we have to think about our customer journey like this. We need to be thinking about the leaps of faith that our customers take in their relationship with us. And so head of customer success obviously was like nodding along like 100%, we got to do this. This is Ryan Engley, who is actually still at Unbounce to this day. He and I and our head of product and co-founder at the time, we sort of went through this process of identifying what we thought were these sort of leaps of faith in our customers' relationship with us. Everything from, again, experiencing the problem, which often gets left out, right? In typical life life cycle journeys, marketing automation, you know, software, they start at like lead. But really, the story begins so much earlier to that. I know I'm preaching to the choir and I'm talking to you, but that's Caitlin. So Anyway, we we sort of forced ourselves to think about this end-to-end customer experience and really think about what are the not transactional moments in our relationship with our customer, but what are those more sort of value moments? And we were able to do that. We, you know, we came up with, I think it was six, six steps uh, or six stages rather, and we identified new KPIs for those stages. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't the typical MQL, SQL. It was, you know, what does it mean when somebody activates in our product? What does a truly engaged sort of lifer customer look like? What's the actions that they take inside of our product, maybe with our team? And we built strategies around that. We mobilized our team around that. We really sort of operationalized it within the company. And it was, you know, am I going to credit the growth of of this company the next, the (laughs) following year, which was insane. I don't know that I can hundred percent credit to this process, but we did grow 900% in revenue in two years following Holy us. Holy smokes. So you can't take all the credit, but I guarantee you there's a lot of credit due for the work well, that you did it. I mean, it has to get executed on, right? Like a strategy is one thing, but like it actually has to get executed on well. And I will say that like we were able to mobilize because we had a lot of people who really gave a shit about delivering a lot of value. And I think that at the end of the day, this just gave us the tools to talk about how to deliver value. It did a lot of the heavy lifting for us. One of my favorite uh, sort of outcomes of this was, you know, when we would have meetings with the product team. I didn't really have to do as much explaining as I had to before. So there used to be a lot of conversations around, you know, when we would do a product launch, I would talk about how our customers could really help amplify a product launch for us when when we roll out new features. And I used to have to do a lot of explaining about 
how marketing could leverage that. But after we mapped this customer experience, I had a lot less explaining to do, just like our meetings were more efficient. Uh, You know, people sort of got it instantly. There was a lot less sort of friction. And I think it was just a a bit of a like level setting across the team that we all got it. And we had this like shared sort of source of truth. So that was my first like real implementation and real like usage of this process. Now I left out like little, little old me back in 2013 doing this. Like I skipped a lot of steps. Research was a massive step that we skipped. We based it on what the team knew, what we knew about our customers at the time, which was, don't get me wrong, you know, quite a lot, but I now know like the, the, that process, especially through my work with Claire, my God, mm-hmm. has really, really sort of, it's morphed into something so much more powerful now because we, I now have been, I've been fully indoctrinated into customer research and the value of it and the applications of it that like, now we have this process when I work, when I do this type of work with Claire, where we can, you know, very quickly, honestly, like when people say customer research, and I'm sure you've heard this, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah, customer research. Eyes roll, right? People get bored. They're thinking it's going to be like, you know, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's not going to tell them anything they don't already know. <laughs> yes. probably not doing it right. Exactly. So we tread lightly, right? On that. Mm-hmm. And, and we have, we've come up with this way of doing research, especially applicable for software, you know, and SaaS businesses in the B2B space, particularly where, you know, we can ask a number of questions in within a survey and within, you know, not not a ton of interviews, just a handful of interviews to develop a pretty solid hypothesis about what your customer jobs are. Mm-hmm. Now, the the thing that I'll say next is that like probably another objection that I'm sure you've heard is like, you know, what what's the what's the what's the quote about the faster horses? Yes. I use this one all the time. So Henry Ford, if if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. So yeah. Henry Ford did not say that for no, a while. I know he didn't. I know it's our, it's the favorite sort of scapegoat. But mm-hmm. um, why I bring it up is because I think a really critical part of this that is a very easy like from the sidelines objection to this type of work is like, well, you know, our customers don't necessarily know what's best, and what if that's like you know, should we just like blindly follow what our customers tell us? And so at this point of the process of after you've done some customer research and you can identify, you know, why, what were the reasons that your customers came to you to begin with? So like of your, obviously there's all, I can get into a ton of detail about how we actually would run these, these, you know, these surveys and interviews, but the TLDR is a really important component of is, is identifying like, why did people come to you in the first place? What was the problem they were trying to solve? What was the moment that they, you know, started seeking out a solution? You're probably going to identify that there's a number of reasons, right? There's, it's not always one reason. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever gone through this process with a company where it was one reason why, you know, their customers came to them more power to you if that's actually the case, but I doubt it. So you as a business have a decision to make at that point. So you're going to see, oh, look, there's like, three to five likely, you know, themes or reasons, trigger moments, you know, why customers sought out a solution like ours. And you as a business get to decide which one are you best suited for today? You know, which one are you most excited to solve for? And then here's where the fun part comes in. 
which one, if I'm excited about product-led growth, which one lends itself most to a product-led, you know, approach or a sales-led approach or a marketing-led approach, right? Like you have a decision to make. What kind of company do you want to run? So there, there's a really important sort of inflection point right there where when once you make that decision, you can then take that job to be done, that hypothesis about what your best top priority job to be done is, you can take all that amazing voice of customer and the quantitative data that you have so far on how you know, you're know you doing across the board in serving those customers. And then you can, you can map that end-to-end customer experience for that customer job and then really have, like, you can really operationalize it and mobilize your team around it. This is so good. And as you're listening, you're probably thinking, holy smokes, I need to do that. How do I do that? And luckily, Gia and Claire, this is what they teach in their membership community. So their membership community, forget the funnel, there's lots of stuff that's there available freely that they just share. But if you're part of the community, they give you access to even more. And I believe this is one of the things that you teach. Is that right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yes, we have a program called customer led growth. And it essentially walks companies through again, this is like the ideal case scenario for this is really SaaS businesses at various stages, because luckily, this framework can be used to apply and solve for a lot of, you know, different sort of business challenges and growth opportunities. But yeah, the, the program is four parts. The first one is really getting uh, really getting clear on what your, your opportunities are as a business and identifying like where you want to sort of zero in when you go to the next phase, which is the research phase. Again, nothing like crazy scary. This is, you know, we've got tons of like templates and tools and, you know, our favorite questions that we like to ask and, the, and the, our favorite types of research to do depending on what problem you're solving and and depending on what stage of company that you're at. And then in the third part, we, we basically unpack all of that and then map that customer experience. Like I was describing. So once you've identified your top, top customer job to be done, then you will map the customer experience and basically like you're basically unpacking the entire customer experience into these milestones where you then as a business, I mean, you can do so many things from that point forward. But uh, one of the things that you can do is identify your KPIs. And another thing that you can do is really like get, you can zoom in on different stages and milestones of the customer experience so that you can solve for the ones where you have the biggest opportunity for improvement and growth and where you identify these success gaps that you know you need to fill. So it's, it really sort of helps you mobilize. But anyways, there's a, after the third part, there's actually a fourth part, which is all about like building a strategy on top of what you've learned and really sort of applying everything. And yeah, like I said, it's, it's ideal for a subscription model business and a SaaS business, because what we've seen is that a lot of the, the marketers, product folks, CS folks, and founders who've run through it, what they tell us is that it makes these conversations internally so much easier. And also it makes it really obvious that things like more leads isn't necessarily going to solve, you know, your problems and Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the biggest opportunity for growth for you. Many of them discover that, you know, their activation rates have a massive opportunity or their engagement rates, the way that they try to engage their customers over time and retain them over time needs massive improvement. And a lot of time that's the sort of their aha moment when they go through this process and they're, when they figure out, oh, here's what my customers want here. And here's what I'm actually doing. And like, there's this big long list of sort of opportunities that sort of pop up when you actually look at your customer's experience in that way. And so the fourth section is really about building a strategy around it. Okay, let's take a quick time out. 
If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my customer ranking calculator. Now, in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you want to download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. So, so good. Okay. So looking at this as somewhat of a a tangible example in your own life, one thing you and I were talking about prior to this is that you have recently invested in a a short-term rental property Mm -hmm. and that you're looking at software to help you run that property. So thinking of this from kind of like your own buyer journey as you're kind of evaluating the different software that's out there, like what would you say if you had to kind of like assess you personally, like what is your job to be done when it comes to choosing, like, you know, what are you looking for that software to do for you? Or are there a few different things? And that's what's making it so hard to find it. Well, no, I mean, it's funny because I, I am so early in the journey because this property isn't going to be available until this summer. It's a, it's a cottage property, right? Like it's not a four season property. So I'm trying to do my due diligence and learn everything that I can about, you know, what do I need to have set up? What do I need to have in place? What are the sort of business decisions that I need to make? I don't know what I don't know at this stage, but I, I want to do it right. And I'm, I'm just like, like I know, I know how to do the marketing. I got that. We know what renos we want to do, and and like I know how I want to furnish it, and like all those things. But it's like it's the other stuff. It's the the more I'm not going to say technical, but like the how we run the business that I'm looking for software around. And honest, obviously, anybody in the software space that's in the sort of short term rental space is helping people automate processes. That's what the you know. Are there software to help people do interior decorating? I mean, I'm sure, but that's not the problem I'm trying to solve. The problem I'm trying to solve is like, what don't I know about what I can automate about this business? What do I, what do I, I just don't really even know what I don't know. So I'm, I'm doing my research online and uh, a bunch have popped up. And to be honest, I don't, there's, there's maybe one or two software that are targeted at my specific job. Mm-hmm. Most of them are targeted at like people who run hotels and uh, you know, they, they, the way that they describe what their software does, I'm like, I'm sorry, what does that acronym mean? Like, I don't even know what these acronyms mean, right? I'm so early in the game. So I say that knowing full well that a few of these companies based on how they're positioning themselves and based on the, you know, the, their features 
I know they're looking for customers like me. They're looking for customers like me who will, you know, start with one and then grow and then continue to invest and, you know, you know, maybe add another, you know, property or two or three. It's just such a classic, they, they've all moved up market, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it doesn't feel like there's like, it doesn't feel like there's anybody there to serve my exact job, even though they say they're there to solve my exact job. There's one software which was the one that I was complaining to by email when, when we were talking about this. And it's like, it, they've got a seven day trial. I'm like, wait a minute, a seven day trial doesn't help me at all. I can't make this decision in seven days. Like mm-hmm. it takes months to set up a rental property. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, especially for the first time, I mean, I would imagine even if you're getting your second or third or fourth rental property up and running, it takes at least a couple of weeks. Cause you've got like there's stuff you got to pull together. So, and there's decisions that you need to make. And there's like, you need to start marketing it before you need a software like Mm -hmm. that. Right. Cause like, if you're not, if you don't have any rentals coming in, then how do you justify spending $50 a month or a hundred dollars a month on software? So I was really frustrated that I wanted to call them up honestly and be like, do you know who your customer is? (laughs) Because seven days is not enough for me. And like, now I'm going to sign up for your seven day trial and I'm going to loathe every email that you send to me about upgrading because I'm just not ready. Other things too that I've seen is like kind of predatory pricing. It's a strong word, but like there's all these like hidden things like in the background. So it's, there's like an additional fee, for example, to send your emails to your renters with your domain. Hmm. It's like a hidden $50 a month extra or something. And it's the stuff that people like me, that's not top of mind for me when I'm evaluating a software. But when I get in the door and I actually invest my time into that piece of tech of my business, I'm going to be pissed, right? If I hadn't looked for that, I would be furious and I would probably bail and be like, and and just feel like it was predatory. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I'll get off my soapbox there, but I I wanted to call them up and be like, do you know what you're doing? You don't know how much you're pissing me off and probably losing so many potential customers who are coming there who just really like they just give them the opportunity, do freemium straight up, give them the opportunity to get a, to get a listing up, to see what it looks like, get a feel for your software and just don't let them, you know, book anything until they're willing to start paying. I'd be happy to do, to do that type of thing. Of course, I'm not everybody, but I would wager that a straight up freemium model would actually work a lot better in that scenario. And just like, don't let them publish their listing or something. But anyway, that's, that's just one little example. And honestly, I'm like so early in that journey that I'm sure if you talk to me in six months from now, Caitlin, I will have a whole other set of things to complain about. Well, it's so fascinating because you you picked up on a really good point. So there's a um, founder that I interviewed for the podcast. His company is Proposify and they help people with making proposals. Mm-hmm. And prior to them actually going out and doing customer research, they had, I believe it was either it was a week or a two week trial period. They just picked it like out of the blue. They're like, this is what some of the competitors are doing. We're going to pick this and do it this way. Yeah. And I believe believe it like if I'm getting the story right of what he told me this was not on the podcast but a separate conversation when they actually then went out and started talking to customers that had signed up for that trial people who hadn't continued with it what they learned was that it you know the time it takes to actually put together a proposal that you're comfortable sending out 
to yeah. a client is not a week, right? And it, oftentimes they were moving all of their processes into this software. And so they had to do a lot of redesigns. And so this, like, you know, this one week trial was absolutely, absolutely a waste of their time. They weren't getting value. They, you know, sat on it for a few days. Now they didn't have enough time and now they weren't going to try it anymore. And yeah. so when they actually expanded the trial and gave them more time and also hit on this massive opportunity around templates, they learned, oh, mm-hmm. people need templates. Then mm-hmm. the company just exploded. Now they're going to be like, you know, a $10 million company. They're growing really quickly. The whole insight around people need more time because they're having a hard time getting their content in. Well, maybe we can help them solve for that with giving them really awesome templates and then giving them a bit yeah. of a longer trial period. That for them was like lightning in a bottle. And it came out of these conversations. For sure. Especially when it involves like changing the way you do something in that scenario, like a B2B scenario, a little bit different in the, in the scenario that, that I'm in. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm more flexible. There's, I'm starting from, from like nothing, but in that scenario that you're describing, that's a big shift to make in the way that like you, you do things and that you operate and the, and, and very likely are offloading to a team member, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody, you may have a sort of economic buyer looking for a better solution or a functional user looking for a better solution, but chances are they've got to use this tool with a team member and a seven day or, or even a two week isn't enough time to actually change their internal process to like onboard another team member into the product. Also, they probably shortened their activation rates by using, by implementing templates as well, which is, yeah, definitely a good idea. Look, there are some scenarios where a seven day trial is like the perfect, perfect thing. But, and and actually that was a, a, that was something I did recently with a company that I'm, that I'm working with where they had a 30 day trial. We shortened it to a 14 day, just just to shorten it because we knew that nothing was happening in the, like the latter half of the trial. But then when we started to dig in, like after doing some research, we we knew what to look for in the, in the actual numbers and how people were using the product. And we realized everybody who activates, I think it was like 87% of people who activate on this product activated within three days. Huh? So they didn't need a 14 day or 30 day trial. So like the reverse is also true. And, and it just like, it goes to show you that there are best practices out there. There's, there's lots of, there's like articles about, you know, the fact that like at the end of the year, I think like from a, from a sort of uh, finance perspective, there is no difference between a seven day trial and a 14 day trial. Therefore you should just use a seven day trial like that is a a thing that I've read in a couple of places, but that might be fine for, you know, you out of the gate as a first guess, because you've got nothing to base this on. Like if you, you know, God forbid are launching a product without doing any customer research ahead of time, like, yeah, maybe you want to experiment with a seven day, but then do your due diligence, go back and talk to those customers and like, you know, validate that you made the right call there and do exactly what you're saying, which is like talk to their customers and learn and then like actually make a change, like iterate based on what you learned and don't just take best practices as like the way you have to, because this company over here did it that way. That's such a classic move too, right? Like marketers are super guilty of that too. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'll, they, they'll look for, you know, way, marketing campaigns that other people have run, 
and be like, oh, I we're going to run a campaign just like that. And they'll emulate it. They'll do you know their version of it. And then it fails because it had nothing to do with their customers. It had nothing to do with like the problem that their customers are, were solving or it wasn't in the format that was appropriate for their customers. It's just like, we're so guilty of that as, as marketers. I say that as like, you know, I've, I've been a, marketing for decades now at this point. And I, we're very guilty of that where we're like, we want to, especially when we're working in house, we want to get We want to get campaigns and programs out the door very quickly, especially in a tech environment where it can sometimes be hostile territory for marketers. So we're really desperate to just like get results really quickly, get campaigns out the door and get these, you know, get some numbers in. But at the end of the day, if you are not putting together campaigns based on like some level of customer insight, at least you are just like throwing spaghetti against the wall. It's so true. And it's so funny, as you've been talking, like this whole idea of customer led just keeps coming back because I think a lot of us do make the mistake of looking at what competitors are doing, looking at what the market's doing, gathering, you know, like market research at a high level and trying to use that as a signal to guide us Mm -hmm. when the real answers that we're searching for, they're buried a little bit deeper because you have to go and actually talk to customers to get them. You can't just scan the internet, but Mm -hmm. there's so much more useful. I've been thinking with this analogy around, have you heard the term the poor man's boots? You know, the poor man has not enough money to go and buy that high quality pair of boots. So he buys the $10 pair instead of the $40 pair, but he ends up having to replace them so many more times because he bought the less quality pair. And I think this happens in marketing a lot where Mm -hmm. people want to move quickly. They don't have time to do research. They want to get something out the door. And when it hits, they say they were brilliant. And when it fails, oh, know there's some something to blame it's not that they didn't do the kind of due diligence of understanding the customer first yeah yeah exactly Okay, so where do you see marketers? You work with a lot of different, you work with a lot of marketers, a lot of um, SaaS companies specifically. Where Mm -hmm. do you see them making mistakes when it comes to identifying their customers' jobs to be done? Like that's kind of the first step, you know, or or the opportunity is the first step, but then you go off and do Mm -hmm. your research. So to validate that that opportunity is true. So when they start doing that research, where do you see them falling off? Well, honestly, the vast, vast majority are falling off before they do the research. It's it's the making the decision to prioritize customer insights, like gathering customer insights, that is by far and away the the biggest blocker. Mm-hmm. Once you can get over that hurdle, again, like it's a hurdle. Once you can get over that hurdle, then it's, it's, I mean, there's a whole slew of things, obviously, that you need to be sort of diligent about, but that, that crossing that hurdle is the biggest thing. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, not to like poo poo on founders or anything, but there's a lot of pressure for these small tech companies to grow very quickly. And it can be really difficult, especially for very product or tech-minded founders to sort of stop for a minute and like take a breath Mm -hmm. and really think about, you know, what are our biggest opportunities and how can we sort of leverage our customers and what can we learn and how can I help my team learn how to think more strategically. So, you know, the, again, like the biggest blocker tends to be that marketers are all in, like so many of the marketers that we talk to and consultants that we talk to and product leads that we talk to, they're all in. The hardest part 
of their job is convincing leadership and the founding members, like the founding team, that this work is worth it. Once that happens, then they're kind of off to the races. Honestly, I, you know, interviews are easy to mess up. I mean, that's a gimme. I see a lot of companies like once again, once they, once they've sort of crossed that and made that decision that like, okay, let's, let's do some lightweight research projects. I'll see people make a lot of mistakes with like survey questions and interview questions. And they just, I mean, honestly, in their defense, I mean, if they've never done a research project before, I mean, me, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't, I would have made exactly the same mistakes, you know, poorly wording questions or asking leading questions or letting too many adjacent teams jump on board of the mm-hmm. research. That is a, yeah. that happens a lot. You know, too, too many teams trying to solve a problem with one survey and one set of interviews is like pretty classic. But, you know, we try to address and solve for all of those things as much as we can by sort of forcing people to make a decision about like, what is the actual problem you're trying to solve with this research so that you can always reference back to what the problem is and what the opportunity is that you're solving for, for anybody who, I just want to add this one question, or you should ask it in this way, or let's, you know, (laughs) let's add an NPS, you know, to our survey Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I, there's a lot of like very, there's a lot of very small things that can go wrong in a research project, which I'm sure you know very Mm -hmm. well. And so just like, not asking for feedback, not getting out of the room, not getting out of the building. I'm sorry that that's another thing that I think that a lot of marketers won't do. They'll try to like run research projects sort of like quietly in the corner. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that happens a lot. And they won't, they won't get out of the building and get, get feedback on the surveys. I've, I've, we ask our members in our community whenever possible, like if you're going to send out a survey to in order to generate some some interviews post the survey questions like give us give us the tldr and what you're solving for give us the survey questions and put them in the community any one of our members who have put their questions to the community have left like thank god we did this Mm -hmm. all of them are like we would this would have been botched had we not gotten like a second and third set of eyes on this So good. And what I'm hearing too, and I think that's really important for people to pick up on is you very much are living your like advice, you know, with the work that you do in your consultancy and the work that you do in building the forget the funnel community and your customer like growth program, you're learning, you're watching what your own customers are doing, how they're applying, and Mm -hmm. then you're shifting your approach and you're giving them new resources. And I think that that's what we need to think about as marketers and also as innovators is really eating our own dog food. It's it's pretty common. Drinking our own champagne. Come mm-hmm. on. I like that's a better one. So good. Okay. So like just sum things up to get people leaving on like a high note, thinking about like, you know, what could this look like for me? You gave the Airbnb example. Like so often, like we see companies like, you know, Amazon, like Jeff Bezos says that they're the number one thing that's made us successful by far is our obsessive view of the customer. Steve mm-hmm. Jobs says, you know, you have to start with the customer needs and work backwards. Drift is one of the fastest growing companies in history. They're all about the customer, but there's, they're big companies. And sometimes we think, Mm -hmm. okay, can we do what they've done? So looking at some of the companies that are coming through your program, or maybe that you're working with your, in your consultancy, can you Mm -hmm. share any smaller wins that teams are getting just from that customer insight and then operationalizing that in their business? Any examples, maybe you don't have to say who, maybe you share your own, but any that we can kind of use as a inspiration going Mm -hmm. out to think about doing this work? Yeah, I'm actually now I'm wondering if I can name them. I might be able to name them. So 
we, I've been, I've been working with a, I wish I, in an ideal world, I would give you a member example. And I totally could. This one just happens to be more top of mind for me as a recently I'm advising a company right now where we ran through a very simple research project that consisted of surveys. Thank, they've got a decent amount of customers. They've got like a low price point, a low ACV product with lots of customers. And so when we ran a, a survey, we got such like amazing insights. That said, the insights that we got actually came back from the, it's not like they had hundreds of, of responses necessarily. There wasn't, you know, we, we got to a a relatively modest number of survey responses. I want to say like 30, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's achievable by a fair amount of people to get 30 survey responses. The thing is, is that we, you know, we were careful in how we segmented, but also how we parsed the survey data. We identified the, the, not only do we identify the customer job, but we also identified by looking at the voice of customer, these value themes that just came up uh, over and over again. And we applied that to the, just the, the pricing page, honestly, mm-hmm. and the conversion rate on the website from new unique visitor to uh, trial start increased. And this is like an obscene number. I, it was in like the hundreds of percent, I want to say 130% mm-hmm. since over a six month period, like we started making small incremental changes starting in April and then all the way up through to, to the end of the year, the inc- the conversion rate on the website has increased 130%. That is amazing. Who yeah, so, would not want to have 130% higher conversion rate on your sales page? Yeah. And it wasn't like a one, a one and done thing. Like we made small iterative changes, but we based them all on like one very simple survey, mm-hmm. right? Like it, we, we didn't even get to conduct interviews. Like we didn't even get to that stage yet. And we ran, we ran these surveys and like a bunch of the responses were throwaway. Don't get me wrong. Like we had a bunch of throwaway responses, of course, but we based, you know, we, we identified patterns that were meaningful enough and significant enough patterns that we, that we could apply it to the website positioning. And honestly, like that's the, that's the uh, often an easy win, like updating the website in general shouldn't be that hard to do. If you have, you know, if it's, if your website is like owned by product or dev or something, then it may be a little bit of a different situation. But hopefully, if you're a marketer listening to this and you have ownership over the website, you should be able to make changes to the website copy relatively easily without needing a whole, you know, needing to get dev involved. Hope, I hope. That said, obviously, like the even bigger wins for this company will be when they get to roll out similar changes once somebody's started a trial. So mm-hmm. the closer you get to a highly engaged, you know, high retention customer, the higher, the more sort of the bigger advantage to revenue. And of course, I, I, an increase in conversion rate on a website is fantastic. But if you're a SaaS business and you can increase your, I mean, there is a, there is a stat on this actually. If you can increase, is it retention and monetization by uh, five, just five percent? You can increase profits by twenty five to ninety five percent. So, think about that, people. Like a- <laughs> think about that. How big that is, and again, like this desire to move quickly and to just try new stuff and like get what's out there working, like. If you do that and you're not basing it on customer insight, it's going to feel like a lot of momentum with not a lot of outcome and it's going to be disappointing. Yeah. 
So all to say that, you know, there are smaller wins, like making updates to, you know, your, your, your website or your pricing page. But especially again, for subscription businesses, post acquisition, you know, improving your activation rates, improving your engagement rates, there is almost nothing that is more important than that, especially by the way, if you're in a volatile market, you know, because of the last year and, you know, things have really changed, you can't control what your market is doing, but you can control how your product serves them and what experience you give to them after they do take the leap of faith of signing up for your product. That is all on you. And, you know, if you can take what you learn from pretty simple research projects and test them in your, you know, your product onboarding or your engagement campaigns or your customer marketing. Holy moly, like the 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 dividends that that pays is way more than just like let's increase traffic and let's get more leads in the door. So 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 good. Okay, so Gia, you have left us with so much good stuff. Now, I also know that in addition to this podcast interview, if people want to learn more about customer like growth, there is a wealth of resources waiting for them. So, where can they find out about that? Is there a, you know a particular webinar that you've done for Forget the Funnel? Is there a blog post we should direct them to? Hmm. I my, my immediate answer is like honestly, just go to the resource library and forget the funnel. So we run, we run events, twice events every month that are completely free. We do a guest interview every month. And then we do a live event every month. We generally will do like a live Q and A so people can show up. We'll be focused on a topic, but people can show up and ask their questions in real time. And we'll like workshop stuff, which is super fun. That's my favorite format ever. And then um, of course, we also have like amazing guests on. You've been a guest. We recently had Justine, uh, Jordan from Wildbit. We've had Heaton on recently. We had Patrick Campbell on recently, like people who really know their stuff. So those are really great. And they're completely ungated and free to watch. And then of course, we have a free membership where actually for the I'm sorry, for the free membership, that's how you participate in our live events. But you can always watch the replays for free that are those are ungated. Um, But if you become a free member, then you can participate in those live events. And then our pro membership includes a community and the customer led growth program and also more, you know, time with us, you know, workshopping your specific, you know, opportunities and, and challenges inside your team. So there's a lot going on in there. We stay very, very busy, but it's really fun. And, you know, we're all focused on SaaS. There's marketers in there, there's founders in there, there's consultants, product leads, like I said, customer success folks, we're all like obsessed with delivering customer value and like really, you know, being really good at what we do. We're like all Mm -hmm. really focused on what is like the best thing for the customer and how to deliver value. I love it. And what I can say is like having been on teams where, you know, there's a small marketing team, having been a founder that's leading marketing, there's nothing Mm. better than getting to go through this journey and learn from really smart people that have moved ahead of you that are have gone through the journey. And then also to be able to just get out of your own head and feel like you're getting the support of the community. I think what you guys have done is just absolutely brilliant. And I really encourage everybody who's listening to go check it out. And it's if you decide to go for the paid member, it's going to be some of the best money you can spend. Thanks, Caitlin. <laughs> awesome. Well, Gia, I have learned a ton. I'm really excited for people to listen to this episode and learn more about customer-like growth. I'm so glad you coined the term. I know you won't take claim over it, but I'm giving it to you. I'm so glad you guys did it because now we can we can talk about it. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. 
And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating, and I'm beyond grateful for each one. And who knows? Maybe one day you'll need something from me, and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again.